Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, sorry I missed last week. I was busy with work and family stuff, so I wasn't able to put out an episode. Um, in the future, I will try and keep interruptions like that to a minimum, but like I've said in previous episodes, I am a husband and a dad and a half-time student, and I work full-time, and my work makes me travel a lot, so it's hit or miss whether or not I have time during the week to pull out a full episode. Usually should, but in the future, could happen again. Anyway, let's get to this week's episode. So last Thursday, March 25th, was the 110th anniversary of one of the most famous and worst workplace disasters in American history, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Now, I want to start with the basics. What is a shirtwaist? Basically, it's just a button-down blouse for women. They were extremely popular in the late 19th century and the early 20th centuries. They were relatively cheap to buy and relatively cheap to make, making them extremely popular for women, especially those that were going to work. They were free-flowing, they weren't constricting, you could do a lot of things in them, so they liked to wear them. By 1910 in Manhattan, there were over 400 factories making shirtwaists that employed thousands of workers. It was big, booming business at the time. But these factories were not safe at all. Many would be considered by today's standards as sweatshops. The conditions inside were awful. They were cramped, they were hot, and the hours were extremely long. They were constantly watched to make sure that nothing was stolen. They were abused. The pay was absolutely terrible. Just imagine all the worst parts of a sweatshop and imagine that's what these were like. In a report submitted to the city just nine days before this fire, 99% of factories that were covered in the report had issues related to fire protection. 14 factories had zero fire escapes whatsoever, which is, you know, a bad idea. 491 factories only had one exit. In a fire, having multiple exits is extremely important. Because if you only have one exit, and everyone knows you only have one exit, then you get a stampede headed towards the door, which becomes a crush at the door. In another infamous fire, the Station Nightclub fire, that had a single exit and people were crushed to death in the doorway in the rush to escape the rapidly growing fire. And that fire wasn't that long ago. The Station Nightclub fire only happened in 2003. So, back to the report. 23 of the factories had locked doors, which is, you know, a very obvious problem if you need to rapid, rapidly exit a burning building. 78 factories had the fire exit obstructed, obvious problem, and 1,172 factories in New York had doors that opened inwards instead of outwards. In yet another infamous fire, the Coconut Grove Fire, the doors on that club opened inward instead of out. When the panicked people inside tried to get out, the doors were unable to be opened due to the crush of people trying to escape, and hundreds more died. So when they got to the door, they couldn't pull the door towards them because there were so many people behind them pushing them towards the door, it kept the door shut. It's a major problem, and it's very much against fire code in basically every building. The man who wrote the report, Dr. George M. Price, reported only a single factory had ever had a single fire drill. And that's just for garment factories in all of New York. I want to focus specifically on the Triangle Factory right now. So, 
Triangle Factory was located at 2329 Washington Place in New York City. The factory itself took up the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Ash Building. The 8th floor was a garment-making floor, the 9th floor was also a garment-making floor, and the 10th floor was offices for the upper staff of the company. In 1909, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory decided that they wanted up their insurance. So they hired a fire protection expert named P.J. McKeon. McKeon went to the factory to gauge what the risks were and what the fire risk was and all that kind of stuff. And as soon as he got to the factory, he was instantly concerned. The eighth floor was a cutting floor, had about 200 people working on it. The ninth floor, cutting floor, had 200 people working on it. The tenth floor, which was offices, had about 100 people. So between three floors, they had about 500 people jammed into this area. And it weren't like these were really big floors. They were relatively small areas. He was also majorly concerned that the factory had had zero fire drills and that the workers had received exactly zero training in how to respond to the outbreak of a fire. They had water pails in random places throughout, but it was hit or miss on whether or not those water pails were actually filled. And they had a standpipe, but the hose was rusted and probably broken at that point, so it was no use. They had no plan on how to evacuate people in the outbreak of a serious fire. He also found the doorway on the south side of the factory along Washington Place was frequently locked to prevent anyone from stealing items and exiting through that stairwell. Mr. McKeon impressed upon the management of the building the need for fire drills and fire safety. He had a different fire prevention expert right to the factory to set up fire drills to run. He never received word back from the factory. So who owned the Triangle Shirtwaist factory? Well, it was owned by two men, Max Blank and Isaac Harris. Blank and Harris were both immigrants from Russia in the 1890s. Upon their arrival in the United States, they began working in the garment industry like many immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Isaac Harris was the tailor. He began working in sweatshops to create garments and was intimately familiar with the upcoming new designs and fashions that would dominate the coming decades. Max Blank was more of a businessman. Before owning the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, he would collect excess cloth from manufacturers and then create blouses that cost significantly less than the major manufacturers. This is how he built up enough to go into business. In about 1895, Blank married a fellow Russian immigrant who whose cousin was the wife of Harris. They would meet later on and decide to go into business together. They founded the Triangle Shirtwaist Company in about 1900. Their first shop was on Wooster Street in New York City. Harris would design the shirts. Blank would travel around and convince shops to sell their product. They sold their shirtwaists for a pretty reasonable $3 a shirt. Then, in 1902, they moved to the ninth floor of the Ash Building for more space. The sewing tables were set up in such a way that the workers would have minimal chance to have conversation in an attempt to drive up productivity. By 1906, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company had expanded to the 8th floor. They quickly grew to become the largest shirtwaist manufacturer in New York City. Then they bought the 10th floor for administrative offices. And then, not long after that, they made their first million dollars in selling shirtwaists. And then... Harrison Blank got the really corny nickname, the Shirtwaist Kings. Why everyone who makes it big in some business ends up being 
whatever they're selling, Kings, is just really old and really tired at this point. Anyway, in order to get there, they did some awful things. First, they had a foreman watching over the workers at all times. He was there to prevent them from socializing too much or really having too much fun. He's also there to prevent them from trying to steal fabric or thread or completed shirts or what have you. At the end of each shift, the woman's bags were searched before they left for the day. The doors to the stairwells were locked during the working hours to prevent theft, though I'm not sure how anyone could slip out with clothes if they were searched every day, and there was a foreman whose literal job was to watch the doors to make sure nobody left. Tables were made to be close together, but not in a way that made it so workers could do human things like make friends or have breaks. That would lower production, and God forbid we allow that to happen. It was also unbearably hot in the summer due to the windows always being closed, or freezing cold in the winter due to literally no insulation. During the trial after the fire, it was discovered that they had caught workers stealing a total of maybe $25 worth of material in the entire year before the fire. Harris stated during his questioning in the trial, that he was unaware how much was stolen from the factory in the year preceding the fire, and he could not name more than two instances in which workers were suspected of trying to steal. His estimation of theft he gave the attorney was about $8 to $12. They were a million-dollar company. They were a million-dollar company in 1910. I'm going to take a moment here. You don't get to making a million dollars in 1910 or 1911 without having a firm grasp on your financial situation at all times. A million dollars in 1910 is $27 million today, and that's a lot of money. These two men, Harris and Blank, were having their employees lock doors to prevent theft. They were searching their workers before they left in order to prevent them from stealing a $3 shirt. They had a watchman on each floor to prevent theft. In my experience investigating fires, people that paranoid about negative events like that know every single instance and the exact amount of whatever the bad thing was that happened. So the fact that he claims he doesn't know how much was stolen or have a recollection of every single instance of thievery in his factory is extremely suspect to me. And it kind of feels like he made them up just to have some kind of instance to give the jury during the trial some reasoning for having those doors locked or having those women searched at all times. That just screams, I'm trying to make excuses for a thing that I don't have evidence of actually happening. But anyway, let's go back to the building. The Ash Building was built between 1900 and 1901. It was heralded as fireproof. The 10-story building was built of iron and steel. And I'm just going to tell you guys right now, never, ever, ever call something fireproof. It might seem like it should be fireproof, but the second you declare your building fireproof, something terrible, terrible, terrible is going to happen. And the empty building may have been fireproof, because it was steel and iron, but that's only when it's empty. It had wooden floors, trim, and windows. The only thing fireproof about it is that it would take a while to actually collapse if it caught on fire, 
and it would eventually collapse if it was left to burn uncontrollably for long enough. It The iron and the steel would eventually give way and it would collapse. So it's not fireproof. It is especially not fireproof if you fill the top three floors full of highly flammable cuts of cloth that are all over the floor, all over wooden tables, and hanging from the ceiling. If you call something fireproof without having a fuel load in it, you're going to have a bad time. The fuel load in this building was massive. And just to add to the, hey, you're tempting the fire gods here, no laws required them to install sprinklers, fire escapes, or outward swinging doors. So, of course, they didn't. But in a continuation of stupid decisions, of which there are many in this case, the architect asked for an exception to the rule of requiring three enclosed staircases for buildings over 10,000 square feet. And he got that exception. But, in an effort to be charitable, I guess, he decided to add a fire escape on the rear of the building. I say fire escape. That's a generous term. More like rickety death trap. Literally. The stairwells that they decided were enough protection were only about 2 feet 9 inches wide. More or less just wide enough for a single person to go up and down, or two people to be able to squeeze past each other if they both stand up against the wall and shimmy. But those staircases only ended about one step width, which is about 12 to 13 inches, give or take, from the doors, which means that the doors could not swing out. They could only swing in. So we've covered that this is basically a giant fireball death trap that's just waiting to burst into flames and, you know, kill everyone inside because it's, it's a death trap. But that's only if there's a fire. A fire would be unprecedented, right? Well, turns out, no. No, it would not be. The fire on March 25th, 1911, wasn't even the first fire at the Triangle Factory. Or the second. Or the third. During the trial after the disaster, it came out that the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory had five previous fires. Harrison Blank only made insurance claims on two of those fires. Three of the fires they decided the damage wasn't worth an insurance claim. One may have been caused by a discarded cigar in a cutting basket. Harris himself observed the fire and carried the basket to the middle of the room where they put it out using water buckets. In the remains of the basket, he claimed to find the remnants of a cigar. He proceeded to fire the doorman he suspected of setting the fire. The first fire they claimed insurance on happened April 5, 1902. The insurance claim was for $19,142. That is $585,000 today. That is a lot of money. But Harris claimed to have no idea how much the claim was. Considering that would be a sizable loss, even today, I find that to be highly suspicious. It was the same with the other insurance claim, which was a smaller loss. That fire occurred on November 1st, 1902. That insurance claim was for $12,905, which is just about $400,000 today. That is a huge loss. I would know. I work in the insurance fire industry. That is a big loss even now. But again, Harris claimed to have no memory of the claim amount or anything about the fire at all, really. And then the prosecuting attorney just kind of moved on from it which is a really confusing choice. When the defendant admits they've had five previous fires in one building, you need to follow that lead. Why are you having these fires? Where did they start? 
what caused them? What have you done to prevent more fires? What failed in this instance that led to the current fire? The attorney really dropped the ball here. He absolutely should have followed this thread for significantly longer than he did. It could potentially have led to evidence that Blank and Harris were purposefully ignoring fires in their factory and could have prevented this tragedy. They could have installed sprinklers. They could have had more fire escapes installed, or at least had the one installed fixed and actually told their workers it was there. They could have, you know, not locked the doors. But they didn't do any of that. There had been warnings. There had been reports. There had been requests. Harrison Blank ignored them all. And that series of choices to ignore those warnings eventually came to what is known as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. The day was March 25th, 1911. It was a Saturday. The day started out a normal one, maybe even a little happy. One worker, Mary Domsky Abrams, was working on the ninth floor that day. She recalled most of the ninth floor being happy and jubilant for most of the day. One of the other workers on the ninth floor, a young girl named Esther, had received a diamond ring from her fiancé the night before. So all the girls on the floor were singing and having a good time, which is pretty impressive considering they worked in an absolute death trap sweatshop. But one thing struck Mary as odd that day. While she was talking to some friends before the shift started, she noticed that the pails that were supposed to hold water in the event of a fire were empty. She told the foreman that they were empty, but he blew her off and basically said, nah, there won't be a fire happening here, and told her she needed to get back to work. Which, there is always at least one person, usually a dude, who says, nah, that's not going to happen before that thing happens. But she moved past it from the amount of happiness on the ninth floor. At the end of her shift, she went to the dressing room to change about five minutes early. While in there, Mary and her coworker Minnie decided not to go back to their workstations after being chastised by the boss for leaving a few minutes early for the first time ever. Mary had been a part of the strike a few years prior and held no fear of the company. The boss had threatened to not let her come back to work on Monday, and she basically told him, okay, I won't be here Monday, I'm not going back to my station. So they went to the only op elevator open since they were only allowed one exit to check for thieves. While standing there, they heard screams from below, but assumed it was people trying to get out first at the end of the day, as per usual. They still had no idea there was a fire, because the fire had already been going at this point, on the 8th floor, until a different girl came and told them to go down the stairs instead of go down the elevator. She made it to the 7th floor before they actually realized the building was on fire. Above them, the fire came out the windows in the stairwell. They sprinted down the stairs, but were held back by firefighters in the lobby, prevent them from getting hit by falling bodies from the upper floors. And that's got to be an insane turn of events. You go from a normal day leaving work to seeing a fire explode out a window while sprinting down the stairs to being stuck inside the lobby in the building because the firefighters are afraid you will die from people jumping from 120 feet above your head. Mrs. Abrams claimed that once she got away from the building, she turned around and looked back and saw one of the four ladies that was working on the ninth floor leap from the window and get hooked on the sixth floor on one of the hooks hanging off the side of the building, and that actually saved her. She also claimed to witness ten men attempt to create a human ladder to save girls stuck higher up in the building, but she stated those men were unable to hold the weight and collapse, which killed all ten men. 
Meanwhile, on the eighth floor, earlier in the day, Josephine Nicolosi was finishing up her work at around 4.45 in the afternoon, just after the end of the day bell had rang. She was looking towards a cutting table where she saw a small match burning on the table. The cutter standing there, Sal Marchese, yelled at her that there was a fire, but he had joked with her so much in the past that she basically accused him of being a liar. But not long after she had yelled back at him, now ah, you're just messing around yet again, Marchese attempted to throw a pail of water on it, but right before the water hit the fire, the fire appeared to explode up and out, and it filled the room rapidly. She panicked and ran to the window in an attempt to jump, but pulled herself back at the last second out of a fear of falling. And you know, I can't blame her. Jumping 120 feet out of a building has got to be terrifying, no matter what's behind you. She stated that there were several girls that were saying that they could jump and that the firefighters would catch them. Unfortunately, that was incorrect. Girls that jump and hit the light-saving mitts immediately tore through them to their deaths. Josephine ran to one of the doors, and it was opened by a machinist who had the key. Once she got downstairs, another girl that had traveled down with her thought the girls who had jumped had just fainted. That girl walked over to check on one of them and was hit by a jumper from the upper floors and instantly killed. Ida Kornweiser was on the ninth floor at the time of the fire. She was young enough that when inspectors would come, they would tell her to go to the bathroom and stay there until they left. She doesn't remember how old she was, but young enough that she definitely shouldn't have been working there. She had heard the end of day bell ring and had gotten up to leave, then heard people screaming fire. When she heard that, she bent over and tucked her pay into her sock. It was payday for the girls, so most of them had their pay in envelopes and they were tucking them into their socks and whatnot, trying to keep their pay while they escaped this fire. Several girls were seen before they jumped out of the windows, shoving their money into their socks and then leaping. But anyway, after Ida shoved her money into her sock, she tried to run to the Green Street stairs, but they were engulfed in flames. So she ran back to the shop where she found a roll of fabric. Thinking quicker than I would have, and probably a lot of people, she wrapped herself in fabric, and then, summoning all of her courage, sprinted straight at the fire. As she ran from the ninth floor up to the stairs to the tenth floor, and then to the roof, she was spinning around in a circle to let the fabric off of her as it caught on fire. She would only end up with burns on one arm, the one place she didn't let go of the fabric. She eventually escaped the roof when students from the building next door dropped boards across the roof as a bridge. The conditions in the factory on the day of the fire could not have been worse. So let's start with the area of origin. The area of origin for this fire was the cutter's table on the Green Street side of the factory that's on the 8th floor. So, what do I mean by baskets? Well, as they were cutting the fabric, any extra fabric that didn't fit the length or width or whatever that they needed, they would put in baskets underneath the table. What kind of baskets? Wicker baskets. What burns extremely well? Wicker and fabric. What is a terrible combination to have in a room full of linens and wooden floors and wooden tables and particles of fiber floating through the air? That. But that wasn't the only issue that was a problem. The last time the cutting bins underneath the tables had been removed was January 15th, 1911. 
At the time of that removal, they pulled 2,252 pounds of material out. And they averaged about two months in between removing material from these baskets. So it's likely there was at least 2,000 pounds of fabric in these baskets underneath the cutting tables. That is a large fuel load that will burn hot and it will burn fast. And it won't require a large amount of ignition energy to rapidly sustain flaming combustion throughout that whole thing. But there's another thing that comes out of several reports from people that were on the 8th floor at the outbreak of the fire. It's that the fire exploded and spread really quickly across the room. And there is an explanation for this. When a worker would finish a shirt, she would hang it on a string that stretched across the factory. So there was just shirts hanging from the ceiling all the way across. There were obviously a lot of shirts on this string. This creates a lot of surface area for potential fire spread in this confined space. Combined with the cutting, creating particles of fabric in the air that would continue to hang in the air because there's almost no airflow, it is reasonable that a small dust-type explosion or rapid propagation of flame could occur. You see, in order to sustain flaming combustion, you need fuel, heat, and oxygen. That fuel needs to have available surface area in order to burn. The more surface area, the more available fuel, the bigger and faster the fire can burn. The best way to explain this is to take a pile of sawdust and stick a lighter on it. It'll burn, but it won't burn very well. There isn't a lot of surface area. Now, if you take that same pile of sawdust, you pick it up, and you toss it in the air, then you stick a lighter into it. Don't actually do this because you will lose your, well, you'll lose all of your facial hair, eyebrows. You'll probably burn your face. You'll definitely burn your hand, and you will not be happy. But if you did that, theoretically, if you tossed a bunch of sawdust in the air and stuck a lighter in it, it will propagate rapidly through that cloud of sawdust. Because when it was in a pile on the table, there was fuel, there was oxygen, but there wasn't a lot of surface area for rapid expansion. When you tossed it up, you exponentially increased the surface area of that fuel. Now sawdust isn't a great fuel in the first place. It burns well, but it's very small and it doesn't have a lot of mass, so it burns quickly. But if you put a whole bunch of sawdust in a room and you go, oof, that pressure of that fire propagating through all of that fuel is going to create pressure and cause an explosion. So when you have all that fabric in there and it's floating through the air and you've got all these dust particles in the air from the constant cutting and moving of clothes and the clothes hanging on the line, you have a lot of surface area for this fire to rapidly spread across. A small dust type explosion is very possible, if not explosion, then a very rapid propagation of flame because if you do the sawdust thing in a small area or I'm sorry not in a small area in a garage that's got a big area you stick flame into it it'll just go and it'll go out but it's very possible that that's what happened in that floor and caused the entire floor to catch on fire so quickly not long after the first report of the fire the eighth floor attempted to call the ninth floor to let them know there was a fire no one on the ninth floor answered the tenth floor 
fortunately did answer, and they were able to evacuate the roof, then climb across the ladder to the building next door. That ladder was dropped down to the building by a class of students in the building over. Both owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, were on the 10th floor at the outbreak of the fire. All but one person survived from the 10th floor. The 8th floor workers managed to break down the doors to the stairwells and escape. But this left the 9th floor workers in a bind. There were four potential exits from the 9th floor. The Green Street Stairs, the Washington Place Stairs, the Elevators, and the Fire Escape. The Green Street Stairs were unusable due to fire. The fire had started on the Green Street side of the 8th floor, and in the panicked escape from the fire, the door was opened which allowed for hot gases and flames to travel up the narrow wooden stairs just like a chimney. This rendered them completely useless. They were also already packed full of people trying to escape the 8th floor, and it was only 2 foot 9 inch wide, so there wasn't a lot of room anyway. So that leaves us with the Washington Place stairs, the fire escape, and the elevators. The fire escape should have done the job, but partway through them trying to escape, it collapsed, killing all 20 people standing on it. It was poorly maintained, it was rusty, and quite possibly broken before the fire. It just could not hold the weight. There's also a consideration that the heat from the already well-advanced fire helped to speed along the collapse of the fire escape, which is highly likely. When you have metal like that, it starts to heat up and it begins to expand, and the weight of 20 people standing on a rusted, broken fire escape that's being attacked by flames is... it's going to fail quickly. So, that leaves the Washington Place stairs and the elevators. Two men were working the elevators that day. Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortolaro. Both made multiple trips back and forth up and down the elevators at great risk to themselves. Zito made a trip to the 10th floor, then the 9th floor, then the 8th floor as conditions deteriorated. In their desperate attempts to escape, the girls on the 8th floor began to fight with their shears to get in the elevator. Zito would be stabbed numerous times on his trip up to the 8th and 9th floors. He estimated he carried down at least 40 passengers on the last trip in an elevator that was only built for 10 people. Girls were punching each other, kicking each other, trying to stab each other with their shears, laying on top of each other in the elevator in a desperate attempt to escape the fire. On the final trip down for Zito, he started to hear a thump. And then another thump. And then another thump. And then another thump. And then blood started to leak through the roof. And he immediately knew what the thump was. And then he heard a loud snap. And they all dropped. The elevator cables had snapped due to a combination of weight and heat damage. Zito would eventually be found in the basement in the bottom of the elevator shaft with a broken leg, smoke inhalation, and trying desperately not to drown in the rapidly rising water used by the fire department to put out the fire. It is estimated he saved about a hundred people that day. After the elevator cables failed, some women pried the doors of the elevator shaft open and were jumping down the elevator shaft in the hopes of landing on the elevator and surviving. After the fire was over, they found 15 to 20 bodies stacked on top of the elevator. And you have to feel for Zito at that point. He's laying in the bottom of an elevator shaft that he has just fallen down. 
He's been stabbed. He's got a broken leg. He's got smoke inhalation, and he's trying desperately not to drown. And all he can hear is a scream, thump, scream, thump, scream, thump, knowing full well that is a human being hitting his elevator and dying again and again and again. But after the elevators failed, the only viable option for escape that didn't mean most likely certain death was the Washington Place stairs. But with the guy with the key to those stairs had already escaped. Which left the workers with two completely terrible options. Burn to death or jump. It had only taken a few minutes to get the fire department to the scene, thanks to the quick response of witnesses outside the building who saw the fire and pulled the fire alarms. But what became horrifyingly apparent when the fire department arrived was that their ladders only reached the sixth floor at the very highest, which you'll note is not super helpful. So the first couple started to jump and the fire department pulled out their life-saving nets. The girls up top would line up the life-saving nets jump and try to angle as best they could so they'd land in a not terrible position in the net. It was just one problem though. As soon as they hit the nets, they tore right through them and died instantly on the concrete. It had to have been a miserable sight, watching firefighters desperately do everything they can only to watch their best option fail in spectacularly horrible ways. If the nets didn't rip, it had yanked the civilians and firefighters holding them over on top of the mangled body. Eventually, the fire chief announced the abandonment of the nets altogether out of fear of firefighters getting killed by falling bodies. Things had gotten so bad on the upper floors that some of the girls that paused at the window for fear of jumping would end up jumping out of the building engulfed in flames and screaming the entire way down. There were stories of girls that would go to the windows and hold hands and jump together or they'd go up and they'd hug and jump together there was one story from a witness on the street that saw a man and a woman get to the window embrace kiss and fall together as they were kissing it had to have been a terrible terrible situation up there where your best option is to jump out into nothing to certain death of concrete rather than burn to death and i can't blame them that fear would make them stop and hesitate at a window until they're literally on fire. So they get the combination of burning to death and falling and hitting the pavement below. That is absolutely a horrendous way to die. And those poor firefighters, they are trying absolutely their best to catch these people, and there's just absolutely nothing they could do. There were several reports of girls that had gotten down to the bottom floor, that were being held back by crying firefighters trying to save them from being hit by their co-workers jumping from the roof above. That's just heartbreaking. And the fire response was about as admirable as it could be asked for in this situation. The response time was three minutes, which for horse-drawn fire engines is really impressive. One of the first engines on scene was engine 18. It was manned by Captain Howard Rutch and his crew. They were the first to reach the fire floor. They hooked up to a hydrant, went up the stairs. They got to the 8th floor when they realized that the slate stairs were starting to give way underneath their feet. They realized that they couldn't get up to the ninth floor 
unless they put the eighth floor fire out first. Otherwise, the fire was just going to collapse the floor underneath them as they tried to put the ninth floor out. It took about 10 minutes of fighting to get the eighth floor fire under control. And you have to remember, this is without any sort of self-contained breathing apparatus. They just pulled up their collars, pulled down the flaps on their helmets, and went in. They did their best not to get close enough to burn themselves, but still be inside where they could put water on the fire. That is some serious, serious courage. They're in a rapidly expanding fire with a massive fuel load, and they're going in without a mask, without air, to put this fire out and try to save lives. It would only take about 10 more minutes after they put the 8th floor out to get the rest of the fires under control. And once the fires were contained, even more horror was revealed. 146 people lay dead. It took hours to get the bodies out of rooms that were stacked on top of each other where they tried to hide for this fire. All of the bodies were taken to Misery Lane to be identified. Misery Lane is named Misery Lane from a previous fire on board the passenger steamship the General Slocum, which caught on fire and burned in the East River of New York City and killed over a thousand people. Those bodies were brought to Misery Lane for them to be identified, the same as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Misery Lane is really living up to its name, unfortunately. 123 women died and 23 men died. All victims died from blunt force trauma, asphyxiation, or burns. The official cause of this fire was ruled to be discarded smoking material. And that makes sense based on what we know about the fire. A cigarette or a match being discarded carelessly underneath the table into the baskets makes a lot of sense for how the fire grew and where it grew from. The electric sewing machines were probably not a competent ignition source. They would have been off at the time of the fire since it was quitting time and most people were getting ready to leave after having just been paid. The only other explanation that was ever put forward was arson. But arson doesn't really make sense for the owners because the risk of having the doors locked and losing employees combined with the PR hit from losing all those employee deaths doesn't really make sense to set the fire. Also, they were on the 10th floor at the time of the fire, and it really doesn't make sense to set fire to your own building while you're two stories up and you have no way to get out. My personal opinion was that it was a discarded match rather than a cigarette, because the match has a much faster ignition time than a discarded cigarette, and discarding a not completely extinguished match into that pile of fabric would make it go really quick. In the aftermath of this fire, the two owners, Isaac Harris and Max Blank, were charged with seven counts of manslaughter and put on trial. The trial sought to prove that the owners knew the doors were locked and that there was inadequate housekeeping of materials within the factory and inadequate fire prevention. Harris and Blank were found not guilty. The trial took 23 days. The jury deliberated for just one hour and 50 minutes. The attorney for Harrison Blank had an interesting defense planned. His entire plan 
was to object to as many fact-finding questions as possible, then force the survivors to tell their story over and over and over again. By objecting to reasonable questions for discovery of facts, he hoped to confuse the jury and muddy the waters. So if he's objecting to finding out if how much fabric is underneath the tables and says it's immaterial or unimportant or whatever his objection is, it confuses the jury to think, well, maybe that's not really important in this case because they're not experts on fire, so they don't know what needs to be discovered or what needs to be talked about to prove manslaughter in this case. Why the prosecuting attorney didn't really have a response to this, I'm not entirely sure. And then, by forcing the survivors to tell their story over and over and over again, he hoped to bring the appearance that they had been fed their stories by the prosecution, since the stories did not change much at all, retelling them each time. Why this would work on anyone is beyond me. If your story doesn't change after you've told it 14 times, you're probably telling the truth. Because if you're lying, you start to forget those little details. So if you are being force-fed a story from the prosecution, those details that are important to a story, especially if you're using the same kind of descriptions over and over again, you're, start, you're going to start to change those because they're going to change in your mind because it's not actually what happened. But somehow this worked, and Blank and Harris got off more or less scot-free. They had a reputation hit, but it wasn't that bad. They continued to operate garment factories. After the fire and during the trial, Blank and Harris would be accused by numerous workers of bribery in an attempt to get them to change their stories. Blank and Harris would eventually settle civil suits and pay $75 per death. But they would not change their ways. Just days after their fire, their new factory is found to not have adequate fire protection or egress routes. In August 1913, Blank would be charged with locking the doors to his factory during working hours again. He would be fined a whole whopping $25, and the judge openly apologized to him for the trouble during the trial. In the years following the fire, thankfully, numerous advancements were made in worker safety. Limits on the time women and children could work were placed, fire extinguishers were required, fire alarms were required to be installed, sprinkler systems were required to be installed, and requirements for number and size of egress points were enforced. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire would be one of the defining moments of the women's labor movement for years to come. The ranks of unions swelled to help organize and prevent disasters like this from ever occurring again. Strikes were held in the weeks following, demanding higher pay, overtime, less working hours, better working conditions, and they won. It took a while, but eventually, they would win. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. You can follow us on Twitter on Disastrous History. It's Disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y, so no vowels in history. Or on Instagram at Disastrous History, spelled correctly. You can also read the episodes in an article format on DisastrousHistory.com. And if you want to send me an email and let me know how I'm doing, you can send an email at DisastrousHistory at gmail.com. Or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let me know. Remember to stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries.